They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. We are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today we welcome onto the program Eric Warringer, who is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Mass. Welcome, Eric. How are you? I'm good, fighting off a cold, but glad to be here. Glad to have you. Yeah, we're excited to have a little conversation. You're new to our synod and new to this pastoring thing, so help our listeners get a, get to know you a little bit more. Tell us who you are, where you've come from, and how you got where you are now. I'm a cradle Lutheran who left the church and then came back. I was raised in Minnesota, and so basically your options are Lutheran, Catholic, or none. So grew up in a good church, was a very faithful church, a faithful family. And my mom died when I was a teenager, and that really affected my faith journey and really sort of didn't understand why church was important. Got to college and got plugged into a Lutheran campus ministry at Ohio State, where I was an undergrad, and met this really great pastor, Jay Gamlin, who was in the process of transforming this campus ministry from what it was into what's now known as Jacob's Porch. Yeah, right. And I got, came on the staff, and I was the student president of Jacob's Porch as it went through the transition. Um, okay. Just, just started to call to ministry and met my wife there, and uh, then went to seminary. And uh, then I followed my wife out here. Um, she's a doctor. We sort of follow her career around. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And we're in Lawrence, Massachusetts now. Um, and I don't know what you guys know about Lawrence, Mass. It's a very interesting context. Well, tell us a little bit about Lawrence. So Lawrence was a former mill city, um, like a lot of the mill cities in in Massachusetts. Um, and it has gone through this very interesting transition where in the 70s um, it flipped from being a European immigration place to being a Latino place. Um, and the city now is about 90% Latino. And of that, probably like 10 to 15% are here illegally. And it's very poor. Um, it's a poor city in Massachusetts. The school district was taken over by um, the state of Massachusetts about five years ago, which was the first time that's ever happened here. So, yeah, it was once called the most godforsaken place in Massachusetts by Boston <laughs> Magazine. Um, and, yeah, it's a very fascinating context. And tell us a little bit about the congregation. So you're, you're kind of doing like a revitalization yeah, missional thing to kind of connect with this community that's different than the people that are the traditional church yeah. people at Redeemer, correct? Yep. Yeah, Redeemer was started here in the 1930s. Um, the neighborhood where it was planted in was a, a German immigrant neighborhood. So the, the immigrants had come over right before the war um, and come to work in the mills. And so they started a church in this neighborhood. And like the rest of the city, the neighborhood flipped in probably the 70s, and like many of our churches in the ELCA, it remained doggedly white, uh, almost 100% white, while the neighborhood became 80, 90, 95% Latino. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of tension around that, and there was some conflict around that, some struggles to figure out how do we how do we reach out to our neighborhood, how do we talk to our neighbors, um, and, and actually just how do you be a neighbor, really some struggles around that. 
that's what we're doing right now is trying to figure that out. I was called in October and through this process where we developed a covenant together between the congregation and the synod and myself. And part of that was we had some goals, and one of those goals was to learn how to be a neighbor um, in our neighborhood. Um, so we've been basically pursuing that now for almost nine months and seeing some fruits of that, even though it's really hard. It's really hard. To get out the old uh, Fred Rogers tapes? Is that yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Fred Rogers. That's, um, you know, the problem here is, is, you know, when people think about like beating your neighbors, you like, well, you go knock on the door, right? When people knock on the door here, it's either the police or it's immigrations and customs. So like door knocking doesn't really work. <laughs> right. Anxiety uh, producing. Yep. Yeah. Right. It's, it's either like a Jehovah's Witness or it's a police officer. Um, yeah. It's not just like you go around and like knock on people's doors and they come to a church that they have no idea even what a Lutheran is. Right. 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 So. Right. Um, and that's part of the struggle is that contextually uh, the folks here are from countries that don't have Lutheran churches. Um, so the majority of the city is from the Dominican Republic and we have no presence there. And so. When I tell people like who we are, the first thing I say is, well, we're really similar to the Episcopal Church because um, they know what that is. Sure. It's both a challenge in the sense of they don't know who we are, but it's also a gift in the sense that they don't know who we are because I don't have to explain all the other stuff that you would have to if you were like a white U.S. Yes. citizen. Right. You can, you can define it. Yep. Basically, yeah. So that's, and that's a great gift, and um, that's been true where we keep encountering people who have never heard of our tradition and don't come to it with um, sort of all the cultural baggage that people bring to our tradition. Um, and so they hear it as a message and not sort of like ludifisk and certain kinds of worship and whatever. And that's been kind of cool. That is so cool. what are the things you, you kind of emphasize then? My sales pitch for Redeemer basically is we, we love Jesus and we're not very cool. That's <laughs> and, and like that's that's pretty like that's pretty straightforward. Like I mean what we talk about endlessly and what I preach about endlessly is grace. In in a context where most of these folks are coming from our neighbors are coming from either Pentecostal traditions or Catholic traditions, that language is actually kind of new for them. And I don't mean that sort of to disparage my friends who are Pentecostal and Catholic who I know well, but the language sort of around grace and that it's not like something you do to earn favor with God is sort of like a door that has never been opened for lots of folks before. Right. Uh, and that experience of it is very fascinating to watch in people's lives. And we've had two or three Latinos who have been worshiping with us over the last six months and for, to watch each of them sort of unpack the tradition a little bit and to hear like, oh grace and just like to watch them sort of it's like a light bulb goes on and it's really great can you tell yeah. us a, a story like a specific example of when you've seen that happen if someone you know kind of like a faith moment or a, a god moment where someone just got the idea of grace and love and how that impacted them yeah yeah um I, one of the first first women who started worshiping with us here, her name's Angie, we met at a vigil after a murder here in the city. And she had actually helped to organize it. She was a high school senior at the time. And we just happened to connect sort of by chance. And um, what actually like got her to redeem her was the fact that I didn't hate gay people. That was the entrance into the tradition. And as we started talking, 
um, I started sharing with her about like how, how we understand God, right. And how we talk about God, that God's not interested in us, like going up a ladder to God, but God comes to us in Jesus. The whole faith journey isn't about what you wear and um, who you sleep with and who you love, um, but it's about following Jesus in our whole lives in that baptismal journey. And she sort of started like chewing on it and like really struggling with it and wasn't sure about it. And we were sitting down to coffee. She told me this story about she had had a conversation with Angel, who you guys have had on the yep. show before, yep. Angel. Um, I connected them because they're both Latinos. She started using language with him that was like unique to her culture. So instead of saying in like Northern European traditions, we say like we climb the ladder um, to God. Um, she talked about how she always understood it as like a really like far walk up a hill. Um, uh-huh. It's a cultural thing, right? Um, and she began to like articulate it in her own language, which was not my language at all. And I was just like, I stood there, like I sat at this table just sort of stunned at this 18-year-old woman articulating in like two months, basically, in her own cultural language, um, how she understood grace, that it wasn't her climbing up this hill, but that it was God coming down to her. Wow. And just to, to watch her sort of, the, like the burden that that's lifted for her, just around sort of her own experience in the church of some abusive pastors and um, some stories in her own life, just to watch like the release for her of to have peace has been really amazing to watch. That is really cool. It's sort of like a transformation of someone when someone begins to understand that and just the impact it has on their life. I'm sure it's amazing to watch. As somebody who came back to the Lutheran Church, I came back to it because of the message. And so I think I understand that a little bit differently than some folks do. I really am not in our church because of its heritage or because of the cultural traditions. I'm in it because of the message. And I think... I think people have picked that up from me and that my emphasis is a little different than other folks. And so to experience what I experienced, not at sort of just like a head level where I understood it as a concept, but that it actually like simmered down into my gut and into my heart that this grace thing was true. And to then watch it in other people is for me, like, that's the fulfilling part of being a pastor is to watch that sort of simmer down for people and to see the light bulbs go on. Um, it's really slow work, though, right? It doesn't happen overnight, and that takes time. It takes a long time. It is time. a long game, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that's hard. We live in really impatient times, and, like, re- at Redeemer, at least, it's we're trying to turn around a system that's been stuck for 30 years, and we're only nine months into it. Right? Yeah. Um, and but we're making progress. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting place. What are some of the places where you have made some inroads with folks? I mean, I know you talked about not having the door knocking thing work. I don't think that really works anywhere, to be honest. And you met this this gal through a vigil for someone who had died. Yep. Uh, what are some other ways that you've connected with folks? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, one of my goals when I started here was just to kind of show up at stuff um, mm-hmm. and to be really publicly visible. So that's meant some vigils. And I actually helped basically to organize a vigil here after the shootings in Orlando um, yeah. because no other pastor would do it. This is a unique enough context where Redeemer probably is the only place where gays and lesbians would be welcomed as they are. 
Um, and so I was the only pastor who was willing to basically put my name on a vigil for Orlando. And so I've made some roads into that community, even though I'm a very straight white male, just by being present at stuff. And our district, um, our like neighborhood association meets in our building now. I pursued them. That was like one of the first people that I pursued um, when I started. And they were homeless, and um, so they've started meeting in our building, and they've done all these events, and we just had neighborhood night out and had like 200 people from our neighborhood in our backyard who thought that the church was closed. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been a really great connection. Yeah, pretty, you know, it's a small enough place that it doesn't take very long to sort of get to know people. Yeah, I'm trying to think. The the other place that I've been pretty involved is... um, the Merrimack Valley Project, which is a community organizing group across, basically runs from like Lawrence to Lowell. And they're organizing around certain issues. The last year they've been organizing around uh, driver's licenses for illegal immigrants. And um, right now are doing some organizing around opioid abuse. Mm-hmm. So I've been pretty involved in that. There's been some inroads and relationships that have built through that. That's great. And we've talked to so many people on this podcast about the importance of being visible in communities and not just sitting in our offices waiting for people to come to us, but really just go out and meet the people where they are at and and have a presence, whether it is in an official capacity as the pastor or if it's just as a community member who wants to be integrated into the community. We hear that's important and, and how people really get the word out there, not only about the church, but about the grace and love of God, which you are definitely doing. Yeah, no, I think that's that's true. I think one of the things that I think I'm careful of is that I really try to be clear that, you know, I do these things because of my faith. Um, and I, that's the, you know, I went to an evangelical seminary, and that's part of my background as, as an evangelical I think some of my colleagues who do similar work are, are much quieter about sort of their faith identity in those spaces. I'm not, and that's just part of who I am at this point in my life. Um, and that's just made interesting relationships. Your uh, time away from the church and coming back, how did that work for you? Yeah, I mean, especially like late in high school, early in college, um, I just like didn't understand like why it mattered. I, I understood it from the sense of like, it was a place of major support after my mom died. You know, it was that my youth group and my pastors were really important people in my life after her death. But it's sort of just like a personal gut level. It just seemed like a bunch of stuff that I had to think about. You know, I was in the classroom all the time and I didn't want to have another thing to like, yes, I believe this or I don't or whatever. It just felt like another philosophy to disagree with. You know, I went to a school with 65,000 undergrads and pretty quickly, like I figured out that things felt very empty at college. Um, you know, I was far away from home and that was part of it, but part of it was just like drinking and partying and going to football games was not fulfilling for me. And neither was working in politics, which is what I was doing at the time. Um, I was I was convinced that I was going to be Sam Seaborn from the West Wing, um, be <laughs> nice. a communications director. Yeah, and you know I, I I found that stuff really important, but it it felt very empty. And so the first place I sort of thought about was uh, maybe I should give the church thing and try again. And it was not sort of like an idea or a concept that brought me back. It was these relationships um, of this community 
um, with Jay, who was my pastor, and with all these other people who were um, searching for a relationship with God and with one another of depth and of meaning, and were wrestling. That was why the place took on the name Jacob's Porch, was yeah. because um, we believed that we were wrestling with one another and with God. I think that was the first time that it felt like something was going on that wasn't just like, yeah, I believe this, or no, I don't. It felt like there was something stirring in me. It was enough to pique my curiosity, I guess, and to stick with it. What drew you to the uh, evangelical seminary, and what did you glean from that experience? Yeah, I mean, I knew that I didn't want to go to a Lutheran seminary having grown up in the church and having really retained a lot of that vocabulary. Uh Um, And so I wanted to go outside of sort of like a mainline tradition to go to seminary. Um, So I went to this small seminary called Weinbrenner Theological Seminary, and it's in Findlay, Ohio, which is like 45 minutes south of Toledo. And it was a great gift. Um, Small classes and really diverse classes. They were often like uh, half white, half non-white. Um, lots of African-American classmates and Indian classmates, which was really interesting. And, you know, one of the things I learned there was to be able to speak about what I believed without sort of our own language around it. Yeah. We have a particular vocabulary that we use in our church. It didn't make sense to any of them. Um, so when I was asked to explain concepts out of my own tradition, I had to use their language, which was a great learning experience in how to talk to other people about what you believe. Um, and to wonder about what you believe yourself, actually. Yeah, right. Uh, and I think the other thing that I learned, you know, evangelicals have a very bad rap in the world, and especially if, in New England, in mainline Christian circles. Um, one of the things that I discovered was that they love Jesus, too. And I don't know how to explain how important that was for me, to know that I could disagree with people and we still loved Jesus the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even if we had significant different disagreements, you know, their personal piety, sort of their personal faith remains very moving to me. And it remains a part of my faith that sometimes I can't find in our church, um, which is this very strong sense of like, it matters every day and it just infects everything you do. And while people make fun of evangelicals for, you know, praying about parking spots and all that kind of stuff. What they forget is, is that, yeah, they pray for parking spots, but that also means that they're praying for like everybody they know that has cancer and uh-huh. everybody they know that is struggling with something. And that sort of really like deep personal faith remains just very moving to me. And it's something that I strive for. I mean, I'm not very good at, but it's something that I strive for because they taught me that that was important. Was it kind of reverse culture shock when you came back into the uh, Lutheran conversation? At Weinbrenner, I was, I, I was like the token liberal in the room. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> and in our church, I'm kind of moderate to conservative. And so, and especially being in New England, it's very different here. Yep. The ELCA itself has been changing. It's a place that is, has gotten, at least at a clergy level, has gotten more monoculture. And so there's less diversity, especially like amongst beliefs when you come to a place like New England. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. You know, clergy here are very, they vote demo- overwhelmingly democratic. They have similar belief structures. So many were trained at Harvard and at Yale. And so I think that remains hard for me. Um, not bad, just there are times when I feel a little bit alien here. Um, but I think that helps me connect with people who are 
um, new to the tradition or who don't have that sort of deep connection to Lutheranism to feel a little bit outside. I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I, yeah. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of Midwest connections because that's where I'm from, too. And um, I always think it's funny you can sit with a similar group of people in the Midwest and I'll feel like I'm the liberal lefty from the you know, East Coast. And then I'll, I'll be out here and feel like I'm the conservative. And it's yeah. the same conversation. And I don't think my position's moved. But, uh, right. you know, so right. it's, it, is, it is interesting just how that is. And uh, I think having a voice from outside that you've internalized, I think, can be really helpful. Yeah. One of the hardest things is, is that our church tends towards having sort of a monoculture anyways. We, with worship and with sort of everything we do, we've always tended to really become homogenous in the way we function. As, you know, I know you guys have had some conversations about decolonized Lutheranism. I'm pretty involved with that. One of the reasons I'm involved with that is because of my own background, because I, that's one of the things that I fear most in our church is this continuing sort of there's only one way to do things. Um, there's only one way to think, and that's how we're going to do it. Yep. Yep. Definitely. We want to talk a little bit about some of the things that you are passionate about. Jeff and I really connect with this quote from Frederick Beekner: "The place where God calls you is where your deepest gladness and the world's needs meet." So, can you talk a little bit about some of your deep gladness, your passions, things that get you excited? Yeah, for sure. Um, being a pastor level is um, being in places that are struggling and trying to figure it out. I really love those liminal spaces, those spaces that are kind of in between. I was a trauma chaplain for a few years. Mm. I really love being and walking with people in those spaces of transformation and transition. I love the problem solving of it. I love the sort of having to pay attention to the way that God moves in unexpected ways there. And it just it keeps me curious. That's a word that I've always held on to as part of my faith is that um, I love being curious about people, about ideas, about places. And that gives me a great amount of joy to be curious about a new place and to figure out what's going on and how to pay attention to God in that place. I'm pretty passionate about um, new churches and figuring out churches that are struggling and giving them new life. You know, I was really involved with Jacob's Porch, and then I was involved with two brand new churches, um, one in Toledo called Threshold, and then uh, Humble Walk in St. Paul, which a fair amount oh. of people know about. Yep. Yep. Um, and I was parishioner at both of those places. Oh, okay. And, you know, uh, Mark Huber, who you guys know, him and I lived in the church basement together. And so that's, that's a big passion of mine. It's not what I'm doing right now because we're not sort of at a season of our life uh, where we can support that right. work. But it's, it's something that I'm passionate about, it's something that we support. We support all those places financially still. It's something that I hope to go back to at some point because— um, I really love non-traditional church. <laughs> I really love places that are kind of funky and weird um, and who play music that isn't with an organ and who don't dress in albs and vestments. Um, that sort of is where my heart is at. And I love those weird places trying to figure it out. Yeah, there's so much that you can do and experiment with when you have more of a non-traditional church. You know, Jeff and I both serve pretty traditional churches, and there isn't that sense of 
uh, renewal in them, even though every church seeks some sort of renewal. But I think your case is a little different than what Jeff and I experienced. So coming to our congregations and saying, hey, let's try this really new and unique and different thing, we might get a different response than, than you might in your context. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're, we're in a place where people are pretty aware that um, major transitions need to take place and have basically gotten on board with the fact that that stuff is happening. And, yeah. you know, that's a gift in the sense of it gives you a lot more freedom to try stuff and to, you know, really reach out and to, you know, think about doing worship in other languages and other styles and new relationships and new partnerships. Um, you know, we're, we're in the process of building a, a massive $15,000 community garden right now. Nice. So, yeah, it, you know, that's the, the gift of that is, is that you have more freedom to try things and less resistance. But the downside of that, of course, is, is that our existence is more fragile. Right. Um, and that's, that's just hard, I think, for folks. Just to uh, dream dreams a little bit, where do you hope Redeemer can go? Yeah, I mean, I think we've stabilized the English-speaking congregation a fair amount, and it's starting to grow very slowly. I think it, it makes sense sort of at a two-pronged level to both start thinking about Spanish language ministry and to start really intentionally looking at leadership that, pastoral leadership even, that it reflects the community. Uh-huh. And that may mean at some point that I kick myself out of a job, basically. But the reality is, is that, you know, this is a heavily Latino community. And while I can make progress in it, it is very difficult to be a white person trying to reach Latinos. And so, and I think there's some, some hope and some work that we're really trying to put into developing leadership that's here already and that's local um, and that could create some potential for new stuff in the future. But it sounds like you're investing in really connecting with the community because you spent some time this summer learning the uh, Spanish language, right? Yeah, yep. You know, we live in Lawrence, and I'm learning Spanish in a way that I can actually use in ministry, not just um, I can use, like, to order food. You know, we're very invested here. I, you know, um, my wife works as a physician here, and uh, we're really grounded in this community for however long we're going to be here. We are, we're here, and we're really invested in it. And to me, it's sort of is like Paul's mantra about a Greek to the Greek and a Jews to the Jews. It's it's really hard, especially in a place like this, to do ministry if you can't invest yourself in the community. And that, in this case, that means learning a new language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if someone wanted to start something new, or if there's uh, someone just kind of starting out in ministry similar to like you have been, what's some advice that you would give them, especially in the way that you communicate your message of the gospel to your community and, and to the world? Just do it. That's the Nike, the Nike <laughs> message, right? But um, I think that actually is like the, the fear. There's so much fear of like, I'm going to get it wrong, or I'm not going to say it right, or my people are going to be upset at me, or I'm going to be rejected, or yada, yada, yada. And actually, the hardest thing is just to go out and do it, is to be out in your community, um, to get to know people, to actually talk about Jesus, not just to like hide that um, in your back pocket. And to create sort of a culture of permission, that's what we're working really hard at Redeemer to do, is to move from a place that you have to ask to do things all the time um, to a place where 
you just do it. And if you mess it up, you apologize later. Um, and to have that permission to try new things and to do new things. Great. The culture permission thing is just so key. I mean, there are certain things that, yeah, groups need to work on, but just to be able to try or to feel like people are supported if they do is huge. I mean, I think so many churches get stuck there. Yeah, you know, that was something that I learned in college. Pastor Jay was a big proponent of uh, culture permission, and I really latched on to that, that um, it creates a different sort of church when you don't um, have to ask all the time to do things. It doesn't necessarily become totally dependent upon the pastor to do everything in the congregation. If someone, like you said, if someone wants to do something, they can go ahead and do it. They don't need permission. They don't need the pastor to say, okay, this is the steps that you need to take in order to accomplish that. Just go out and do it. If it doesn't go well or if it doesn't meet some of the other expectations, well, you know, ask for forgiveness later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. And and learn. I mean, learn. learn, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's, that's hard though. It's, it's a, it's a way of behaving that for some reason is not natural to, the way that churches function. For some reason, we've really taken on this model of like committees for everything and multiple levels of bureaucracy. Our world is so quick and dynamic and changing that it's very hard uh, to function in that context when you have to go through like two levels of approval plus the pastor every time you want to try something. Like it just doesn't work. So besides vacation, which I know starts for you as soon as we're done talking, what, uh, what keeps you going? On those busy, busy days that you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Oh, the people here. I really love really love the people in Lawrence and the people at Redeemer. It's sort of a, a working class community. Um, for the folks who are at Redeemer, they're pretty much working class. And then but the people who I meet in Lawrence, I mean, just such great people who have started worshiping with us and who we make connections with. The possibility of having a church that is for them and belongs to them and talks about grace and their culture and their language um, really just like keeps me going um, because our church is closed. You know, the Lutheran church has closed so many churches in urban areas like right. Lawrence that, I mean, if we can even have the seeds of figuring something out, we have made major progress even in the two or three folks who we have now to watch the transformation that the message of, of our tradition has given for them it's just like we there's there's possibility here um, and that really keeps propelling me forward and those people propel me forward you know because they care about this place and they want to see it do well well thank you Eric for coming on the podcast today uh, it was great getting to know you a little bit more and hearing about the ministry that you are doing in Lawrence there a couple of questions just to end up here one is do you have either something that you're reading a favorite book that you're reading right now or something that's you've read that's pretty valuable that you like to share and what are some of the ways that people can get in contact with you Right now, I'm finishing a really old book, but it's a book that I love by John Courtney Murray. It's called We Hold These Truths, and it's all about, he was a Catholic priest um, writing in the early 60s. He's a pretty conservative guy, but it's deals, it's a very faithful perspective on trouble and politics in America, basically. He very presciently sort of anticipated what we're struggling with right now, which is we don't really have shared common values anymore. He writes really extensively about what happens in cultures that lose um, sort of shared values. Even even if his values aren't what you share, the fact that 
we don't have these shared values allows for folks like Donald Trump to raise up anger and fear. And so he talks extensively about that in the context of the 60s. Um, and so I found that really interesting. And it's a great book. He's a great, he was a great, great priest um, and was one of the sort of foremost Catholics in that time period, writing and thinking. And to get in touch with me, Facebook, Twitter, at Eric Warringer on Twitter, email, phone call. You know, I'm a millennial, so I'm on pretty much every social media medium that you can think of. I have Snapchat. I have Instagram. You yep. were Facebook lighting for a little while there, but you, you kind of stopped. Yeah, we have... Yeah, we have. Um, we'll probably keep doing it. We it, when we're in the basement of the church when it's really hot. I don't have any internet down there. It, you know, the Germans built these churches like castles. Yeah, exactly. right, right, right. So when you move from one room to the other, you lose your Wi-Fi signal, basically. Gotcha. So yeah, when we go back upstairs, we'll we'll have Wi-Fi again. That'll be good. Good. Well, thank you again, Eric, for joining us, and thank you, podcast listener, for joining us as well. Uh, we are the Two Bald Pastors. And if you want to get to know us a little bit more or see some of the other interviews, especially the ones that we have done with Onhill and with Mark Huber, you can check out our website, twobaldpastors.com, or you can connect with us on Facebook, facebook.com backslash twobaldpastors. So once again, I am Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. It's long enough to know better. <laughs> I knew better before I got into it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you can't win them all. It's good. You can't, no, you can't win them all. I didn't, to, know, that, I didn't know that Serbia that. was good at volleyball. I learned something new today. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the good thing about podcasts. We can end this stuff like that out.